this week, Monday, was Valentine's Day, and we knew it was coming since just after Christmas, because as all the Christmas decorations got taken down, you know, everything got replaced by heart-shaped everything, and red and pink and so on. So, I mean, we've really been um, prepared for Valentine's Day. So in, in this mood, in the mood of Valentine's Day, um, let's play a word game. Not wordle, uh, but another one, a synonym game. So I want you to just name any synonyms for the word love that you can think of. Whatever you think of when you hear the word love, um, shoot with synonyms. Cherish. Sorry? Adore. Adore. Jesus. Joy. Kindness. Affection. Commitment. Forgiveness. Care. Okay, not everyone at the same time. More, more, more. What, what do you think of? Hmm? Consideration. Sacrifice. Patience. I love pizza. Guts. Guts. Okay. Compassion. Compassion. Oh, passion. Yes. Just passion. <laughs> Definitely. Okay. Um, yeah, we didn't even touch on the way we also use the word very often, and that is the one I threw in there, I love pizza, or I love these flags. Um, I don't have very much passion or commitment, to it. well, I do have a lot of commitment to the flags, but, um, you know, it can also just be like, or, you know, um, enjoy, you know, hunger, <laughs> lust, all of those. So... Um, the thing is that in, in Afrikaans and English, and uh, I'm not sure which other languages, but I do know in those two, we, we are kind of short of words. Well, what we heard now is that we are not, but we don't use those very often. We, we throw in the word love, you know, for everything, everywhere, um, and it gets quite murky sometimes, like how, what is love really or how do you really define it? And that's because it's so broad. We use it so broadly. Um, you, can use, you can give different definitions and they will all be correct and they will all be different. And they will all describe different things that happen in you or different objects uh, of, of your love. So one of the languages that does have a... Um, a, a very big vocabulary in terms of love is Greek. And you might have heard this um, and heard about the different words that we have in Greek for, for love. Um, there might be more, but uh, there are mainly four that we can talk about. Um, and the first one is the Greek word storge, and they translate it with affection. And that's the love for the expected and the familiar. That's like the, um, the, the smell of coffee or the sound of footsteps of someone that you, you know, you, you're excited to see or um, working in the garden or, you know, your favorite dress or 
trousers or whatever it is, um, that's, that's a fiction. It's not, it, it doesn't move you towards much action or anything, um, but it is like you get a warm, fuzzy feeling when you hear or see or feel that thing. Um, so that's the first one, affection, and it's often alongside the other loves. So you can have a real, we will get to that, but another kind of love for your husband, but you also have affectionate feelings, like, you know, it's um, that kind of fuzzy feeling that you get. The second one that we want to talk about is uh, romantic love, eros in, in Greek. So... C.S. Lewis said about this that different than with friendship love, which we will come to, lovers are always talking about their love. Um, and the danger in romantic love is that it will follow blindly after the feeling of passion. So uh, we build romantic love on this feeling of passion, and when the passion dies, then we think the love also died. Um, but it was actually just the passion that died. And uh, this is one that we are going to focus on a bit um, during this sermon because it's a big idol in our culture. But we'll get to that. The, se the third one is friendship love, phileo in Greek. Now, listen what C.S. Lewis wrote, wrote about this in, in his book, The Four Loves. To the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully human of all loves, the crown of life and the school of virtue. The modern world, in comparison, ignores it. Friendship, according to Lewis, has the closest resemblance to heaven, where we will be intertwined in our relationships, because we develop a kingship over something that we have in common, and uh, we all have a longing for that camaraderie that makes friendship all the more wanted. So... If we look at the ancient texts, I mean, we find very, very little poetry or, or literary works on erotic love, on romantic love. That's one of the things that makes Song of Songs so um, profound, is because it wasn't very common to write about erotic love at all. Um, and if you think about, for example, The Lord of the Rings, which is, you know, one of the most successful books and movies of the past hundred years, and according to those who have read the book, um, there's the, the romance that we see in the movies is not really there in the book. It was put in so that the rest of us watch the movie. <laughs> but it's, it's not the point of the movie. It's not the romance. It's the friendship, the fellowship of the ring. So... I mean, think about it. How many, how many songs can you quickly think about that's about friendship? Lean on me. Lean on me. I've got a friend, yeah, which is from a, a, a Disney movie. <laughs> yeah. How many songs can you think about quickly that's about love? Like hundreds. <laughs> so it just proves that our culture is taking out friendship, taking out the phileo love, and replacing it with eros, saying you can go without friendship, but you really cannot go without passionate love. The fourth kind of love, and this is our chief aim, is agape. They translate it with charity. Uh, and that's interesting, the, so um, 1 Corinthians 13 
uh, you might know it from somewhere, some wedding or something, um, is, you know, the word love is found the whole time in it, and it's the word agape, and the King James Version actually still translates it with charity. Okay. Um, so, yeah, the word charity for, for the, this agape kind of love. Um, and I'd like to read you a, a quote of Lewis again on this love. He says, there's no safe investment when it comes to agape. The love, uh, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart, your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, unpenetrable, unpenetrable irredeemable. It's interesting that that's also really the image that, that God uses often in the Bible is a heart of stone, uh, a heart that's just impenetrable. <laughs> I cannot pronounce that word. Um, and, and unbreakable. So the thing about this agape word is it was used, or it, it, it was found in Greek, um, but it was not used as much as phileo and eros. Those two were the, the words for love that were mostly used. Agape existed. Um, you would have found it in the, in the dictionary, but it wasn't that common. And then the Christians had this thing where they now had a God who revealed himself in a way that didn't fit any of those others, uh, other definitions or words. So they took this word agape, and they actually, for the first time, really put meaning into it. Um, and 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the main texts that they do it. It's a very um, definitional text for the word agape, for what agape means and what it is. So let's, at that point, let's read the text. So if you have your Bible here, please open it up. Um, or on your phone or something. There's also Bibles over there if you want to grab one. Um, 1 Corinthians 13. I'm actually going to start reading at the last verse of 12 and also read the first verse of 14. So beginning from 12 verse 31. Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in human or angelic tongues, but do not have love... I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. 
But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. So if we want to talk about love at all, or agape love, we have to look at this chapter. But we have to be sensitive for where it is in the Bible. So uh, at the seminary where I studied, one of the big tongue-in-cheek lessons was the only text is the context. If, if you don't know the context, you shouldn't read the text. <laughs> so it's really important that if we want to understand what, what it means, we need to know where is it, who wrote it, you know, who did he write it to, and all of that. So let's now do the very important work of looking at the context. So the, the background of this epistle. So firstly, it is, it is an epistle. It is a letter written uh, by Paul to the church in Corinth. So reading the epistles um, is, is something like reading someone else's mail. Um, it, it's a letter that was, wrote in a, that was written in a certain context for a certain purpose, to, into a certain situation. But that, can, that shouldn't discourage us or make us think, okay, so I can never understand this uh, because I, I wasn't there. Because uh, the epistles, reading the epistles and, and the other texts we have in the New Testament is more like reading Ricky's mail, but also Jan Chris's mail, and also Cory's mail, and Andre's mail, and, you know, Johan's uh, historical account of the, his time with them. Um, we have different letters. We have the book of Acts uh, that... that talks in, in Acts 18. It's all about Paul in Corinth. We should read that together with the letters to the Corinthians. So it's, it's not a shot in the dark, you know, what, what this might mean or what the context is. We can, we have different accounts and we can put it together. So the city of Corinth was uh, in, in Greek, in Greece, and um, it's on a, also a difficult word for me, isthmus. So like a, a little a narrow part of land between a bigger part, two bigger parts of land. So it's not an island or it's not a peninsula, but it is a very narrow part of land. So that made Corinth a very um, profitable trade city because the ships from the east uh, would Rather than sailing around the Peloponnese Islands, they would come to the eastern side of Corinth and unload all their cargo uh, and take it on wagons across this little piece of land. And on the, other sh the ships on the other side, they would uh, upload it again and take it further. So this was, this was like a double port city. It had like 
ports on both sides. Um, that means it was very multicultural, you know, all cultures from the east, from the west, all came in, all the religions, there were temples for Greek gods and goddesses, Roman gods, uh, Egyptian gods, Persians also started coming in, a synagogue for the Jewish god, and now also, you know, a church for this Christian god. It was very multi-religious. There were also a lot of prostitutes, double port city, double the sailors, double the women. So there was really just a lot of cultures, a lot of prostitutes, a lot of, you know, problems. So... Um, Paul, we read in, in Acts 18, stayed there for about a year and a half, maybe two years. Um, he, yeah, and he built up this church and stayed with Aquila and Priscilla. They made some tents to have food on the table. Uh, and this is the kind of the, the geographical background for this letter. So at this stage, I'd like to put up a slide um, as we go to the outline of this letter to the Corinthians. So we see that Paul um, roughly uh, talks about five different topics uh, with the greeting at the beginning and the, the conclusion or concluding notes at the end. Um, and let's have a look at these five uh, themes or topics that he talks about. And keep in mind the, the, the history of Corinth or the, the makeup of Corinth. So th firstly, it was divisions and, uh, and unity in the church. I mean, just think about this really multicultural, multi-ex-religion you know, ex -religion, um, group. They were really diverse and they had questions about divisions and, and unity, and problems with that. What also happened is that other apostles came in and preached to them, Apollos and Peter and so on, and they, um, they got divided because of those preachers, and um, Paul said, no, we are all centered around Christ, uh, and we are all building on the same foundation. The second topic that he's talking about is the sexual misconduct, uh, all the, the sexual relations. So the people, some of them believed, you know, because we are saved, we can still do whatever we want to, and we can still um, sleep with the temple prostitutes and so on. And, um, and Paul is saying, no, your sexual integrity is one of the main ways in which you respond to Jesus' love. Um, and to him dying to your sins. You cannot continue in your sins if he died for your sins. You also have to die for your sins uh, or die, you know, to your sins. So um, that's the second thing. Then the third theme is about food um, because the, uh, a lot of the meat was offered at these various temples and then it was sold on the markets. And some people said you can eat it, some Others said you can't, and he said, well, you should have, you have freedom. Your conscience doesn't have to be affected by that meat, but you have a responsibility towards your fellow Christians as well. To, um, if, if that hinders them, then you shouldn't eat them in front of them, but uh, you can eat it. So wisdom in that situation, when it's okay to eat it, when not. The fourth theme is worship and the gathering. So Paul speaks about men and women in the church, about um, the gathering being a place where God's spirit should be working through everybody. Um, and it is also in this section that he uses the very, very poignant and well-known metaphor of the, the 
church being a body. Um, and that we're all different parts, but we, and we have different functions, but we are united under the head, which is Christ. Um, and he talks about the gifts and the, the spiritual gifts and everything in that theme. I mean, in, yeah, in that section. Um, and then the last one is where he talks about the resurrection. So there were people who said, uh, you know, this whole resurrection thing, um, we don't believe it, but but it's fine, we're still Christians. And Paul's like, no, it's, that's not how it works. Like, if the, if the resurrection didn't happen, then Christianity is very much flawed, and you must all please go if, if that's the case. Um, but it's not, because Christ did raise, or, yeah, rise from the dead, and that gives us a future hope of our own resurrection from the dead one day. All right, so that's the, the five themes um, and just a side note, I mean, it's interesting if you look at those, this letter could have been addressed to a church today. Division in the church, sexual immorality, food uh, as, as an idol or gluttony. Um, like the, the outflow might look different, but these themes seem to kind of repeat themselves in, in any place that humans are involved at. Um, and then worship, the gathering, how should that look and be, and the resurrection. Just think about the debates and so on going on about the bodily resurrection of Christ. So the answers really are all in the epistles. That's something that I've come to realize recently. <laughs> we should really read the epistles. Um, they have it all. So the thing about this letter to the Corinthians is that it is about learning to look at every area of life through the lens of the gospel. That is what Paul is trying to teach um, his church or the church in Corinth. So, the big question that we are asking today is where in this letter is this poem, if we might call it that, uh, on love, this hymn to love? Where, where is it? Is it in part B, chapters 5 to 7, which is about sexual um, conduct and how men and women should relate to each other, that would make a lot of sense. No, it's not there. It is in the fourth part, the part about worship, about the gathering, about the church, about the body. All right, so looking at this section, the, this section on worship, the one highlighted in, in pink there, um, I'd like you to go to the next slide, and what we have here is something that is very, very common in both Hebrew and Greek um, literary works. It is a literary technique that was really, really popular. So if you can kind of make a switch in your mind when reading your Bible to look for this, I mean, treasures will open up to you. Um, and that is what we call a chiasm or a ring composition. So uh, it's like a sandwich um, with, you know, you can, I try to indent what it is. So it's like an A, B, C, D, C, B, A. You know, if, if you're rewinding to school poetry lessons, um, it's where the first one and the last one corresponds in, in theme or in style or whatever, the second one, second, last one, and so on. And then the focus, it's like a pyramid, where the focus is then on this thing, this topic that's in the middle. 
So um, in our case here, the hymn to love. So we find in, in the first and in the last sections, the men, topic of men and women leading in worship and prophets, how they should dress. And then at the end, um, number seven, women and men worshiping, no chatting in church. So that, those are the themes you know, the first and last ones in this section. Then the, the second one, number two and six, is order in worship, sacrament, the Lord's Supper. And then number six, order in worship, the word, prophets and as those who speak in tongues and order in that. So the third one, number three and number five, is gifts and the nature of the body. Number five, spiritual gifts and the upbuilding of the body. And then in the middle between these two and this larger structure, we have the hymn to love, which means that Paul really wanted to focus us here. Um, just a quick one, the next slide as well. We see it's broken down even further, a further chiasm or a deeper chiasm within this bigger one um, where we have the spiritual gifts, the spiritual gifts, love and the spiritual gifts, love and the spiritual gifts, and love defined in the middle of chapter 13. Now, this does not happen by accident. This is not something that, you know, Paul was just quickly late at night, you know, oh, what were their problems again? Oh, I was this and this. Okay, guys, be better. Um, this is really like the, he really put mind and, um, and design into this letter to, to make this happen. And we should see this. We should realize this. So um, with that in mind and with this structure in mind, seeing where this where this chapter is, where this hymn is, where these uh, definitions for love is, we can only come to the conclusion that this is not about love between a woman and a man. It's not about love between you and your spouse or your girlfriend or whatever. It's it's just, it, it cannot be. It's, it, it just does not make sense. Within the structure, we see it is all about love between fellow Christians, love between us. Literally, those of us sitting in this room together today, for some other reason, deciding dialogue is a place that I want to be at. It is the love that we should have for each other. So, and... I mean, it's amazing. Like when Paul thinks about this, about church, he's, he's thinking about the gathering, about the gifts, um, about how they are disorderly, um, and he becomes absolutely lyrical about this love, about the unity, about the patience and the kindness, um, and, you know, not doing wrong, not rejoicing with evil, in that setting, in that setting of preaching, singing, serving, tutoring, um, raising kids, making coffee, in that setting, Paul is absolutely in a, I don't want to say he's in a trance because he's not, he's, he's very much here, but he, he just, you know, he's lyrical about this. And 
yeah, it's the same Paul that said earlier in this letter, you know, if, if you want to marry, that's fine, especially if you're going to sin, if you don't marry, please do. But, you know, if you can, don't, because, I mean, if we read this, we can understand why he had such a high, um, a high view of not marrying, because he had this, um, this phileo agape love in the church. And he strived towards that in his, with his fellow believers. So with this in mind, I'd like us to read the text again. So read it and think, how does this change how you think about church? How does this change um, your understanding of this text? How does it change how you react to to so-and-so in the church, in your cell group, in, you know, the, the, uh, the place where you serve, the team you serve on. How does it influence that? Let's read it again. Um, welcome to open up with me. Again, 1 Corinthians 13. Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. So, so this follows the part where he says, uh, where he talks about all the other gifts, the, the prophecy, um, tongues, words of knowledge, uh, miracles, administration, which is another gift that he mentions in Corinthians. Yes, it's a very, very useful gift to be able to do admin. Um, so if you can, please <laughs> tell us. So uh, now eagerly desire the greater gifts. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. So this is, this is actually an image um, that kind of gets a bit lost. And he's saying, uh, he's talking about a mountain pass. This most excellent way, it is a high, uh, physically high way. I will show you the highest way, which is also the most difficult. You can go through the valleys, but you can also go over the mountain, which is very steep and very difficult, but it is the greater way to go. He continues, if I speak in human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. So if we worship here in front, if we speak in front, and it's without love, it's just with knowledge and with, um, with, with a gifting, it's, and it doesn't have love, we are nothing. Like it says, it's really useless. So if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, I mean, those things are very, very noble, very noble deeds indeed, that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. So people might give away things to gain some kind of reward in heaven or gain a feeling of, you know, whatever. But if it's without love, you will gain nothing. Love is, then he continues, what is love? So that was now the part that we said earlier. It's the, the love and the spiritual gifts. Now we're going to um, love defined positively, in positive terms. Love is patient. Love is kind. Then into the negative terms which is really the pinnacle of this whole chiasm structure. And I think the reason for that is he's describing the Corinthian church. He's describing everything that he has been addressing in the first part of the letter in these 
two or three verses. Verse five. It, um, sorry, verse four. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. So that's also a beautiful verb. It's, it's it, together with, it, it rejoices together with the truth, together with others, with the truth. Um, being happy when truth, you know, com- comes out. And then we go into some positive definitions again. It always protects. I think the, um, the ESV says there it bears all things. So, um, so that's something like a, like a waterproofing. The image we have there is like it protects like something that, that's waterproof, like a roof um, or a covering over food or, or drink or something. It always protects it always trusts or believes. It always hopes. Now, those probably refer to, the, to our relation to God. We always trust and believe and we always hope in God. It can also, if we have, you know, reason, I mean, we cannot always trust and believe all people because we have reason, you know, they've maybe shown themselves untrustworthy, but we always strive to do it, especially if they... Um, have proven themselves trustworthy, but we can always trust and believe God and hope in God. And then the last one, always perseveres. Love never fails. Also, love never falls. It doesn't fall off this mountain pass. It perseveres. It goes on in patience. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. One day we will know all things, and the prophecies and the knowledge will not be necessary anymore because God will reveal himself in fullness to us. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, and this is the same word um, that he uses earlier in the, in the, uh, the epistle, um, where he says, I gave you milk because you were children in the faith. He says, when I was still a child in the faith, because he was, he didn't grow up in a Christian home, he you know, radically came to, to faith and he had to learn all the, the, you know, the way of Christ. He had to learn it. He says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, thought like a child, or I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain. So the other things will pass away, but these three will remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. In a sense, faith and hope will be fulfilled um, with Christ's second coming, but the love will remain. The love will remain throughout heaven and throughout eternity. And the first verse in, in chapter 14, follow the way of love. It says, run after love, run after love, and eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially the gift, a gift of prophecy. And then he goes on to why the gift of prophecy is one to be desired. Okay, so... That really is it. That I hope you saw that this chapter, this chapter that, I mean, even non-Christians know it very well and hear it, uh, you know, at weddings and everything. 
I think it has been misunderstood. It has become misunderstood. We, 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 if we really think about it, we kind of always put it in a, in a romantic situation or in a situation between maybe even family members, like a, a mother and child, but it's usually between a man and woman and, you know, your spouse and so on. And that is just missing the point so profoundly. I mean, this love, the highest of all the loves is between believers. And of course, that will not, it will include your husband or your wife. Um, it, it doesn't exclude them. It doesn't say, okay, you don't have to love them in this way. But it's bigger than that. It's broader than that. Uh, and it includes more people than just those that you decide to commit to in the sense of marrying. Um, it's, it's those that are haphazardly, you know, in the same room tonight. Uh, you didn't choose them, but the call is to love them in this way. So, we will now go into a time of communion, which is quite beautiful. They also called it a love feast uh, in the... In the um, early church. So I think when we think about the word love feast, we don't think about communion. And once again, that idol we've made of erotic love just pops into mind. And so as we now share in this love feast together, um, I wanted to, to continue thinking, thinking on this and ask God to show you one thing or one person to build this kind of relationship with. Um, or one thing in this chapter to really change your way. Uh, because we can't change everything at, the, you know, at once, at the same time. That will be very frustrating. But we can strive and we can um, you know, decide on, on one thing to change. And I'd like to also read us... Uh, a few verses that is also in the, the book of uh, Corinthians or the letter to the Corinthians, uh, but earlier in the part where he talks about the, the Lord's Supper, um, you know, as, we, as we go into communion. So I'll be reading from chapters 10 and 11. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we, who are many, are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then... Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So this is a time of introspection, but it's also a love feast. We also do it in community. We check our own hearts. We put things right that's wrong in our hearts, and we commune together. We enjoy this this meal, this communion, the, the bread and the blood, because we are one body because of Christ's body that was broken. So I'd like to pray for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we can be here tonight. Thank you that you speak to us and that you spoke to us through your word this evening. Lord, I pray that as we now now go into a time of communion that you will make us sensitive for your spirit, that you will guide us and bring things to our mind that we need to put right or that we need to repent of. And Lord, I pray that you will journey with us further in this way of love, in the meaning of of love and its outflow in our lives. Lord, we are ever grateful for your body and your blood that was broken and spilled for us so that, so that we can have eternal life and that we can now be a body under your headship. I thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.